All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 14, verses 10 and 11 this morning. Uh, we have a whole bunch of visitors today. Uh, we're glad to have you. Uh, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, what we do here in this church more often than not is we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. Um, but this morning in Mark 14, we come to one of the darkest and most vile portions of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, this morning we come to the account of Judas Iscariot agreeing to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, now, when you hear the name Judas Iscariot, what do you think about? I know whatever it is, it's not good. Right? There, there is a reason that nobody names their sons Judas anymore. You've never met baby Judas. Right? No, no one does that. The name of Judas Iscariot tastes awful in the mouths of those who love the Lord Jesus. And that's because Judas was the disciple who betrayed Christ into the hands of his enemies to be crucified. So wretched is Judas that his name has become synonymous with the act of betrayal. If somebody sells you out, one of the things you can call them is a Judas. And that's not street slang either, right? That's, like, that's in our thesauruses. A Judas is a betrayer. In Christian art, Judas is often depicted with a black halo behind his head. And that signifies the blackness of his heart and the damnation that now belongs to him. Judas was a betrayer of our Lord, and his, even his name is a hateful thing. And this morning, we will be considering Judas and the plot to betray Jesus. And I, I plan to stop and spend some time on, on one theme. We're going to walk through the text, and then I plan on, on spending some time on one theme that we learn from the life and actions of Judas. And here is the theme. How far one can go in religion without actually being converted. How far one can go in religion without actually being converted. And much of the content of this sermon will be dark and unhappy. Um, I, I think that these two verses in Mark's gospel actually serve us as something of a warning text. And, and I want to flesh that out before we're finished this morning. We will be considering the reality of falsely professing Christians or false professors. We will be considering the reality of apostasy. And again, just how far you can go in the externals of religion without being converted to Christ. But before I begin, I, I want to be clear about something. I don't doubt the profession of faith of anyone gathered here today. To my knowledge, the members that are gathered here, I have no reason to, to doubt your profession of faith. Uh, for those who are visiting with us, if you profess faith in Christ, I don't know you. You're visitors. Right? I believe in a judgment of charity uh, I, to my knowledge, no one here is under the discipline of the church, and I hope, again, to the best of my knowledge, that everyone gathered here is faithfully following the Lord, repenting when they realize their sin, and loving Christ. But the text before us highlights the reality of falsely professing Christians, and so I need to preach that hard reality. And I need to preach it, please hear me, I need to preach it as if preaching to those who may be falsely professing the faith, because I don't know. I don't know. I believe in a judgment of charity toward those who profess faith in Christ, but I cannot see hearts. Only God can do that. And so I will preach this theme and step aside and pray that the Lord would do his work in each of our hearts this morning. So with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, 
who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Holy God, who sees all hearts, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that as we read your word, your word really reads us. And so we ask this morning that you would lay us bare before the word of God. Help us to examine ourselves in light of your word. If there are any among us who are unconverted, I pray that you would convert them. And for those, God, who do love the Lord Jesus, I pray that you would grant them the assurance of salvation. Open our minds this morning and open our hearts to receive the the truth of your word. And help us all to see the mercy of God found in Christ Jesus our Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now before we dive into verses 10 and 11, I think we need to look at verses 1 and 2 of the beginning of this chapter. Uh, Mark in this chapter has done what he often does, uh, and he makes what some commentators call a Markin sandwich. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 are interrupted with the account of Jesus being anointed with perfume in verses 3 through 9, and then Mark resumes the narrative that he started in verses 10 and 11. Uh, So verses 1 and 2 are the general context for verses 10 and 11. So let's start there. Mark writes, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that is Jesus, how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So in Mark's narrative at this point, it is two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, This was one of the most important Jewish holidays under the Old Covenant. It was this festival, Passover, uh, that that commemorated God's rescue of Israel from slavery to Egypt. And how on the night before the Exodus, before Israel went out from Egypt, God's wrath went through Egypt, killing the firstborn of every house. And the only way to be spared from that wrath was to kill a lamb, and put its blood on the doorposts of the house. And wherever that blood was applied, God's wrath passed over that house, and those inside were spared, hence the name Passover. As I said last week, it is a a glorious thing to consider that our Lord was crucified at Passover, is it not? This this was not an accident. This was the sovereign plan of God. The Passover and the slaughtered lamb, here's an opportunity, here's how you should read your Old Testaments. Look for Jesus. Look for things that foreshadow and point to Jesus. The the Passover and the slaughtered lamb pointed beyond themselves and to the lamb of God who came into the world to be sacrificed for sinners. The Passover pointed forward to Jesus Christ who offered himself on a cross in the place of all who would believe so that the wrath of God would pass over them because it was exhausted in him, the lamb that was slain. So it's only fitting then that the substance, if I could use Paul's language here, the substance, which is the sacrifice of Christ, would take place on the day that the shadow, the Passover, was celebrated. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. He is our Passover lamb who has been punished and killed in our place so that by his blood we can be washed clean and saved from the wrath of God that is due to us for our sin. And it was during this Passover, again, two days before Passover in our text, it was during the Passover that the population of Jerusalem would greatly increase. 
And so the religious rulers of Israel, members of the Sanhedrin, who want to kill Jesus, they want to wait until after the feast is over. They say, we don't want to kill him during the feast, and they don't want to risk a riot breaking out. They don't want an uproar to start. Jesus is a popular teacher, a popular healer, and they are worried that the crowds would riot if he was arrested in broad daylight. So they, but they still want to arrest him, so they want to do it secretly, um, in the night, as it were, and that's what happens. They want to arrest him at an opportune time after the feast. But as I highlighted last week, and I, I can't talk about this without saying it again, they wanted to wait until after the feast, but God had other plans. God had other plans. Again, I want you to see that God was in control of this whole situation. It was the plan of God that Jesus Christ would be sacrificed at Passover. And please hear me. Take comfort in this, Christian. All the schemes and plans of wicked men cannot undo the sovereign will of Almighty God. It can't be done. God is almighty, which means nothing, he, there is nothing he cannot do. He can do all his holy will. Jesus Christ was going to willingly lay down his life in order for his, or rather, for his people in order to save them, and it was going to happen during the feast. But those who desired to arrest and kill Jesus, Mark tells us, were the chief priests and the scribes. This was a group within the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling body of Israel at that time, and it was made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. Matthew chapter 26 tells us that it was led by the high priest Caiaphas, this, this meeting of chief priests and scribes that want to kill Jesus, was actually led by the high priest. Again, they are the religious elite of Israel in that day, and they have desired to kill Jesus for quite some time. And just to put a couple of things to you, they wanted to kill him for a whole lot of reasons. He'd cleansed the temple and cost them money. He was a threat to their authority. He was a threat to their entire legalistic, works-based religion because he came preaching a gospel of grace and mercy found only through him. He was a threat to their authority as teachers, because if he is the great prophet and teacher that Moses had spoken of, who was to come, then they need to listen to him, and they're not running the show anymore in Israel. He was a threat to them, though he did no wrong to them. In their minds, he was a threat to them because they hated him. And in their minds, he was a blasphemer. He claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be, though veiled, they could see it, he claimed to be the Messiah who had come into the world to establish the kingdom of God, and they did not believe him. And so they, they believed he was a blasphemer and worthy of death. There are many reasons that they wanted to arrest and kill Jesus. And in John chapter 11, verse 57, we read this. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he, that is Jesus, if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So members of the Sanhedrin had put out a notice that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they should come forward and let them know so that they could arrest him. They knew he was in Jerusalem. They would see him out publicly teaching, but they were afraid to arrest him in front of the crowds, but they did not know where he was staying. They wanted to arrest him, so they put word out throughout Jerusalem that the chief priests, even the high priest, wanted information on how and where to arrest Jesus. And that leads us into our text this morning. Judas was responding to that horrible notice. If anyone knows where Jesus is, let us know. We want to arrest him. That's what Judas is responding to. And verse 10 tells us that Judas went with the intention to betray Jesus. 
Verse 10 says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. I, I highlight that for you because there are, some, there are some people out there who say that Judas was like tricked into this, that he just went to talk to them for some reason and, and kind of got tricked into selling out the Lord. That's not what Mark says. He went in order to betray them. Right? He, he didn't go to them and then they asked him to betray Jesus. And hear me, the religious leaders pro- would have never thought to ask a disciple to betray Jesus. They, that, that probably would not have crossed their mind. Just like, would, would it naturally cross your mind? The, the ones who have been following him for three years, who are in his inner circle, yeah, let's ask one of them to betray him. That would have never occurred to them. But Judas goes to them looking to betray Christ. He knew what he was doing. Right? He was... This was no innocent meeting where Judas was tricked or tempted. He went to the chief priests with murderous and treacherous intentions. Do you see here that Judas took the initiative? I want you to see that. Judas took the initiative here to betray Jesus. In Luke's gospel, we're told that at this point, Satan entered into Judas. But Mark doesn't mention that. Why? I think Mark is highlighting that Judas did this. Judas did it. Now listen, both are true. Both are true. Satan, who is the primary Christ-hater and primary enemy of God, stirred Judas up to this action through temptation. And Judas, at the same time, also really truly wanted to betray Jesus. Both are true. Judas was tempted and influenced by the devil, and Judas also still really wanted to betray Jesus Christ. And a note here, something really sickening to consider at this point, that I, 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 can, I can never hardly get away from this um, when I consider that Judas betrayed Christ, is that Jesus had never done anything wrong to Judas. Or to anyone. Right, like, I'm not saying that we condone any kind of treachery, but... If someone has wronged someone else and then they double-cross the person, sometimes you're like, I could see where someone would maybe want to get even with you. Jesus had never done any wrong to him. And yet, despite that, Judas still wanted to betray him. And that makes us ask the question, why? Is that not the great question when you read this? Why did Judas want to betray Jesus? The Bible only gives us one motive. People speculate about different things, different reasons why Judas would have betrayed Jesus. The Bible gives us one motive. The love of money. That's it. The love of money is why Judas did this. John 12, 6 tells us that Judas was a thief. And Judas was given what to betray Jesus? Money. He was a thief who was given money to betray Jesus. Nothing else is ever said about his motives or his loves. He loved money. That's what we must conclude. How how sickening a thought. Judas did this because he loved money more than anything. Brothers and sisters, I'm not going to preach a sermon about greed, but just hear briefly the warning of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Or hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It was the love of money that pushed Judas to betray Christ. Money was his God, and so he gave up the Lord of glory for cash. And we see here a lesson for us that I want to I address briefly. See here how we need to be on guard against our pet sins. Do we not? What do I mean? Judas was a thief. He held the money bag and he stole often. He loved money. And so Satan used what? Money to tempt Judas to betray Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we need to be on guard against those sins that we know most easily and strongly entice us. Satan is not stupid. Hear me. He may be a fool, biblically speaking, because he doesn't listen to what the scriptures say. He may be a fool, but he is not stupid. He is powerful, and we are not that strong in ourselves. So we must be constantly vigilant and watchful of our souls and against sin. He knows how to tempt us. Judas gave himself over to his sin and sold out the Savior, and many do likewise today. Brothers and sisters, be on guard. Be on guard. Put your pet sins to death each day. But Judas agreed to betray Jesus. And then we read in verse 11, And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. These are chilling words. They were glad. They, they rejoiced is another translation of this. They rejoiced. Why? Because they found someone who would betray the Lord. These men truly hated Jesus, and they were agents of Satan, absence of, absent of all good and fueled by the power and influence of the devil himself. And they gave Judas money for his treachery. Mark doesn't mention how much, but Matthew chapter 26 tells us that they agreed to give Judas 30 pieces of silver. This was about four months' worth of wages for the average worker in that day. Today, in Scioto County, that is between $7,500 and $10,000. That's it. This makes me sick to think about, and I'm not trying to sound pious. Like, when I read that fact, it made my stomach hurt. Judas sold Christ for less than $10,000. The Son of God, who is of infinite worth, the Lord of glory was sold for less than 10 grand. That is sickening. The one of infinite value was esteemed as nothing in the eyes of the betrayer. And catch this. Why is 30 pieces of silver interesting to us? We read in Exodus 21 verse 32 that 30 pieces of silver was the economic compensation for the unintentional death of a slave. Hear that. 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave. That is all that the chief priests and Judas believed that Jesus was worth, a slave's price. Also see here the glory of Christ, who is the servant of the Lord, who was the slave of God, who willingly offered himself on a cross as a servant. See his glory here, but also see how undervalued he was. For us and for our salvation, he was sold as, as a slave into the hands of wicked men. For less than $10,000, Judas, Judas sold out the Lord of glory. And today, many still do the same, but they do it for less. Verse 11 closes with, And he sought an opportunity to betray him. 
Judas went out from that meeting looking for just the right time to betray Jesus. Luke chapter 22 verse 6 tells us, He consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So Judas is looking for a time to do this privately. So he leaves their presence and like a devil begins to prowl looking for the right time to give Jesus into the hands of his enemies. He began to look for the right time to hand Jesus over to death. The stage has been set. Judas has agreed to betray Jesus. Passover is in two days. The crucifixion of the Son of God is on the horizon. And with that, our text ends. And we now turn to consider a warning from the life of Judas. How far you can go in religion without being converted. How far you can go in the externals of religion without being converted. And I want us to consider this in light of a phrase in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. That's where I'm getting this. I'm not just pulling this out. It's, it's verse 10. Who was one of the twelve. He went very far in religion, externally speaking. He went, I would argue, he went as far as a man can go in religion, externally. He was an apostle. He followed Jesus face to face for three years, but he was not converted. He was not a true believer, and he never was. He never was a believer. Let me address something briefly. Some people believe that Judas really was a Christian, but that he abandoned the faith and lost his salvation. Some people believe that. That is not possible. That is not possible. Um, the, the scriptures are quite clear that anyone who has been born again, anyone who has truly embraced Christ by faith, cannot and will not be lost. Let me just prove this briefly. In John 6:40, Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is talking about raising them up to eternal life. How do we know that? Well, because he, everyone's going to be raised from the dead. But here Jesus, in a positive way, is saying, I will raise up the one who believes in me. So they'll have eternal life, period. If you believe on Christ, you will receive salvation. It is not even a possibility that you will be lost. In that same chapter, in John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So whoever comes to Christ will never be cast away. If you come to Christ in faith, you are secure in Christ, and he will not lose you. He will not cast you off, period. In John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says this as well. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. By the way, that would include the devil. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus says that whoever receives eternal life from him, which is received through faith, will never perish, period. You won't. You believe on Christ, you will not perish. You will be saved. There are many other texts that we could look at, some explicit and some implicitly teaching that those who believe on Christ cannot be fully and finally lost, but will be saved in the end. Now, in, in, in light of those and other texts, I think that we can safely say that Judas was never a true believer. He was never converted. And that's because nobody who truly comes to Christ in faith will ever be lost. Now, hear me. 
and we have examples of this in our own lives, people that we know, a true believer can stray for a time. But by God's grace, because he is faithful to his covenant promises to them in Christ, they will renew their repentance and come back to Christ before death. If they do not come back, they prove that they never belonged to Christ to begin with. Again, one who professes the faith and falls away, never to return again, never truly had faith to begin with. They fell away from their profession of faith. They apostatized from their profession of faith, but they never actually fell away from salvation. 1 John chapter 2, 19, uh, ch- chapter 2, verse 19 says something to this effect. John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. The Apostle John says that if someone was really a Christian, they would have continued in the faith. But people fall away because they were never really of us. What does that mean? They were never of the same spirit that we are. They were never born again. They were never believers to begin with. Such people had what the Puritans would call a false faith. They were the stony and weedy ground in Jesus' parable of the sower. Such people are what we call false professors. They falsely professed to be Christians. And their profession of faith was proven to be false because they did not continue. And Judas Iscariot is the most famous of such people. He apostatized from his profession, but he never had true faith. And let me give you some explicit proofs for this now. Bear with me. I, I, want, I want you to know Judas was not a believer because that's, that's important for the point that I want to make. In John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus says, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now catch that. This is important. Jesus does not say one of you will become a devil, but rather he says one of you is a devil. At that time when he said that, one of you is a devil. One of them was a devil. And a Christian, I hope we know basic theology enough, a Christian is not a devil. Judas was this devil that Jesus spoke of. And we know that because earlier in that chapter, in John 6, 64, we read, For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus knew who was a believer and who was not a believer. And he knew that Judas would betray him. Judas was this devil that he had spoken of who was not a believer. A second thing, in John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus prays, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas is the son of destruction, that the scriptures prophesied would betray the Lord and be damned. What does that mean? He was predestined not to eternal life, but to eternal damnation. Therefore, he could never have been a believer because God will not lose those whom he has predestined to eternal life. A third proof. In John 12, 6, we read of Judas. He was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas was a constant and unrepentant thief. It's not that thieves can't be forgiven or saved. He was an unrepentant thief. And the scriptures teach us that no one who persists in known sin without repentance has been born again. A fourth proof that Judas was not a believer, and this is actually pretty interesting to, to catch. I, I never thought about this until a couple of weeks ago. In John chapter 13, verse 27, we read, Then after he had taken the morsel, 
Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And then in verse 30, we read, So after receiving the morsel of bread, he, Judas, immediately went out, and it was night. He went out when? Right before Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And who is the Lord's Supper for? Believers. Only. And Jesus sent Judas out before instituting the Lord's Supper. What do we see here? If I could put it uh, in, in maybe some strange language, Jesus fenced the table before he instituted the Lord's Supper. What, what Stephen does every week, uh, he, he, he tells you, if you're not a believer, this supper is not for you. You cannot participate in this. Jesus, who is the true pastor of God's people, fenced the table and sent the unbeliever away before instituting the sacrament on the night when he was betrayed. Jesus would never knowingly give the Lord's Supper to an unbeliever, just as we are not permitted to knowingly give the supper to an unbeliever. And then lastly, you can look again at 1 John 2.19. And see, Judas went out from us because he was never of us. Brothers and sisters, Judas was a false professor. He was never born again. He never believed on Christ. His faith was a temporary faith. And as such, it was not a saving faith. He didn't lose his salvation. He never had it to begin with. And that is true of everyone who falls away, never to return. But let's now consider, having proved that Judas was never converted, Let's prove how far a person can go, or rather, let's consider how far a person can go in the externals of religion without being converted. And I'm going to use examples from the life of Judas to do so. He went very far in religion. Let's consider how far. I think there are seven things at least for us to consider on this subject. First, Judas was a church member. He was a church member. You say, how do you get that? He was one of the 12. Bear with me. The 12 apostles correspond to the 12 tribes of Israel. That was not an accident. 12 apostles correspond to 12 tribes. When Jesus chose the 12, he was showing that a new Israel was being formed, a true Israel was being formed, and that he was at the center of it. So we can see then that the 12 were like a prototype of the church. The church in seed form is what some people like to refer it as. And so Judas was a church member of sorts. He fit in. Please hear me. By all external accounts, Judas appeared to be a believer. He was so good at playing the part. And I say playing because he was an actor. He was a hypocrite. That's what hypocrite means, someone who's a play actor. He was so good at playing the part that nobody suspected him of being the betrayer. In John chapter 13, verse 22, we read that none of the other disciples knew who Jesus was talking about when he said, one of you will betray me. They said, is it I? Right, like it wasn't like you read that and you go, it's Judas. Because you know, none of them had any idea. What does that mean? He blended in. No one pointed at Judas and said, it's got to be him. He blended in. No one suspected him of being a false professor. He played the part. Please hear me. Many people in pews all over the world are not converted. They are very religious, sure. They are present at church gatherings. They participate in the worship of the church. They take the Lord's Supper. They've been formally received into membership and all the rest, but they are not converted, and their fellow church members are none the wiser. I did this my entire upbringing, by the way. 
Very religious, not converted. Congregation, hear me. You can be part of the best church. Right? And, and, and just, I hope I don't sound arrogant. I think our church is like the best church in this area. I love, I love this congregation. You can be part of the best church with Jesus Christ himself as your immediate pastor. Because that's what the 12 had. You can be part of the best church with Christ himself as the immediate pastor, with the most godly members next to you, like 11 apostles, and still be unconverted. Church membership does not necessarily mean that you have been born again. Being part of the visible church does not necessarily mean that one has saving faith in Christ. A second thing about Judas, he knew the words of Christ. He knew the words of Christ. Judas knew the gospel. He just didn't believe it. But he knew it. He knew because he had heard. He knew that the only way to be saved from his sins was to believe upon Christ. He knew that the mercy of God was only to be found in and through Jesus. He knew what Jesus said. He was there when in John 8, 24, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He knew. And Judas knew the law of God. He had heard Jesus preach about what God requires of all men. He was there on the, whenever Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. That God requires utter perfection. Judas knew his own sins. He knew the law. And listen, he knew all of the warnings of Jesus about the reality of hell for all those who don't come to him in faith. Likewise, Judas knew the offer of salvation that Jesus made to all who would believe on him. And that nobody would be turned away for Jesus is prepared to have mercy. He knew. Please hear me, church. He knew the word of God. Congregation, we can know the Bible very well and still not be converted. We can memorize and quote the word of God and still not be converted. We can understand the word of God and it never find its place in our hearts. Please hear me. Knowing the Bible is not the same thing as being converted. It's not. A third thing, Judas saw the works of Christ. He saw them. He saw Jesus calm seas, heal the blind, crippled, and sick. He saw Jesus cast out demons and raise the dead. He saw Jesus do all of this with a word. He knew the power of Christ. He was an eyewitness to the works of Jesus, and yet he remained in his sins. He never looked to the almighty Christ to save him. And even today, people in churches can see the works of Christ and remain unchanged. Now listen, when I say that, I don't mean literal miracles or signs and wonders. I don't believe that those things continue today. But you can be in the church and see the power of Christ, can't you? You can see lives changed. We, we've watched this. You can, you can watch atheists, Muslims, Buddhists, legalists, and all manner of sinners converted to Christ. And we have witnessed that in this congregation. You can witness all of that. You can watch Christ change lives. You can watch, it is one of my joys as a minister, you can watch greedy men be made generous, sexual sinners be made pure, drunks be made sober, the heartless be made merciful, and all manner of sinners be changed from one degree of glory to the next by the Lord Jesus. 
You can see the works of Christ all around you and you yourself remain unchanged and unconverted. And that's because you will not come to Christ in your own heart and seek mercy from him yourself. A fourth thing, Judas spoke of Christ. He spoke of Christ. Imagine the conversations he would have had with the 12, rather with the other 11. No, no doubt they would have had so many good religious talks about the things of God. They, they would have digested together what Jesus was teaching and what it all meant for them. Right? This is, a, I would imagine, a first century version of what the Puritans called Holy Conference, where they would sit around and talk about the things of God together. They did that, I'm sure. What I'm getting at, in other words, Judas with the 11 would have had pretty good theology, I think. At least better than your average person in Israel at that time, walking around and hearing Jesus teach for three years. And he would have spoke often of religious things. Please hear me. Oh, please hear me. I think Reformed churches probably need to hear this more than most churches. You can have excellent doctrinal precision and good, pure theology, and that does not mean you have been converted. That does not mean you've been converted. You can have all of the doctrinal prowess of John Calvin, Herman Bovink, and John Gill and remain unsaved. I believe that there are theologians burning in hell today because they loved knowledge, but they did not love Christ. Oh, hear me, there's a world of difference. You can love knowledge and not love Christ. You can even love the Bible because it gives you knowledge about many things, but not love the Christ that the Bible reveals. Please hear me, doctrinal precision does not a Christian make. Love of theology for the sake of knowledge alone is not a sign of the new birth. You can spend all your days talking about the Bible and good theology and remain unconverted. Judas did. A fifth thing, Judas knew the character of Christ. He knew his character. He knew the goodness, holiness, grace, purity, perfection, kindness, and all the other beauties of Christ. He knew them. He bore witness to them. He just did not find Christ beautiful himself. He knew that things were true about Christ. But he did not find Christ beautiful. He knew what kind of a man Jesus is. He knew what kind of a savior he is. He knew that Jesus is gracious to all who come to him. How he'll never turn away anyone. How he's a true lover of men. He knew Jesus' perfect moral life and that there was no hypocrisy in him. He knew all about Jesus. And he could not refute what he saw in Christ. He knew to some extent that there was glory in Christ. He had to have. He spent three years with him, and yet he remained unmoved by what he saw in Christ. Congregation, you can know all about Jesus and not be converted. I know some of these points are stepping on each other, but I want you to see this. You can mentally recognize the goodness and perfection of Christ theoretically, but not find him beautiful in your own heart. You can know all about him but not be saved because you did not at root find him yourself to be beautiful and worthy of your affections though you know many true things about him. Sixth, Judas was friends with those who loved Christ. 
He was constantly around people who really loved the Savior. He walked with the eleven, not to mention the larger group of disciples. He was there. Judas was there when Mary offered her gift of perfume to Jesus. He was there. He was actually the one that led the charge on being angry with her. He was there. He was there to see people come to genuine saving faith. He was walking daily with other disciples. What I'm getting at is this. Judas kept good company, didn't he? He kept the best company and was still unconverted. Congregation, your best friends can be the most holy men and women on the planet, and that will do nothing for your own soul. The righteousness of Christ will not rub off on you. Justification is not like a cold. You can't catch it from other people. You can't. You must be born again. You must come to Christ yourself. Having Christian friends does not make you a Christian. Please hear me. Please hear me. I'm I'm not denying that good company can't make someone better to some degree. You can be externally influenced to some degree by godly company. And you can experience some kind of external reformation of life because of godly influences around you. But that is not enough. That is not enough. Keeping good company is not the same thing as being converted yourself. A seventh thing, and this is such a warning to officers of the church, Judas did ministry with the other apostles. He did ministry. I've seen people try to get around this, but you can't. The 12, including Judas, were sent out to preach and cast out demons and heal the sick. Judas was there. And there's nothing in the text of Scripture that would make us believe that Judas did not participate just as fully as the rest of them. Hear me. Judas, to some degree, was used by God. Like Balaam. Remember Balaam from the book of Numbers? He was a pagan false prophet that for a very brief period in his life, God actually used to utter true prophecies about Israel and even the coming of Christ. And yet Balaam perished. He was a pagan that God decided to use. Judas is the same. He is a Balaam. He's a Balaam. He did ministry. He preached. He performed miracles in the name of Jesus and was still unconverted. Please hear me. I'm talking to myself here. You can do all manner of ministry and not be saved. You can busy yourself with all kinds of good works and still be unconverted. There is nothing that you do that can save you. No amount of ministry you do means that you're necessarily converted. Why is that? Because good works do not bring about salvation for sinners. You must come to Christ and be washed in his blood through faith alone. Ministry does not equal conversion. I mean, my goodness, read about the men in the 16 and 1700s and how many of them, because Christianity was so cultural and their ministers were paid so decently most of the time that it's just a profession you wanted to go into. John Wesley had been a pastor for I don't know how many years before he was converted. You can read histories and see this. This isn't just Judas. Judas knew and did and saw all of these things, but he was never converted. He never loved Jesus. He never personally threw himself at the feet of Christ and cried out for mercy. 
He never trusted Christ to save his soul. He never saw Christ as glorious and precious. And this is evidenced by the fact that he thought Jesus was only worth 30 pieces of silver. And we see the same thing happening today, do we not? And it is heartbreaking to witness. We see Christ sold out for sexual gratification, money, attempts at fame, political aspirations, the applause of the world, friendships, autonomy, selfishness, and a host of other things. To summarize, and it breaks our heart, so many we have witnessed have traded Christ for the world. And what always sticks out to me is that those who betray Christ don't even usually get the fullest and best that the world has to offer. I was talking to a member of this church about this last week. Have you considered that? Judas loved money. And how much did he get? $7,500. Now don't misunderstand me. The world has nothing to offer that is worth betraying the Lord. But those who betray him don't often even get the best that the world has to offer. They betray Christ for less than 30 pieces of silver. And by doing so, again, they prove that they never loved him to begin with. They had a show of religion. They had a show of godliness. But they never had the substance of the thing. They may have even had some kind of emotional experiences where someone played just as I am lightly on a piano and they bawled their eyes out on an altar and were never converted. Maybe there was emotional experiences, but they were never truly changed. Their hearts were never truly changed. They never loved the Savior and valued Him as precious beyond measure. For if they ever did, they still would. Because once God gives your heart a true view of Christ, you cannot fully and finally turn away from Him. And one of the grimmest realities of apostasy, of apostasy is that their eternal condemnation in hell will be greater than that of any other. Please hear me. I don't have time to flesh all of this out this morning. It's a different sermon for a different time. But hell is hotter for Judas Iscariot than for any other person. Hell is worse for a falsely professing Christian and an apostate than for the heathen who has never heard the name of Christ. Let me read from, let me read from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. The apostle says, For if we go on sinning, Deliberately, after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What the apostle says here is how much worse. If you die under the old covenant on evidence of two or three witnesses to your uh, capital crime, how much worse will it be for you to trample underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ? How much worse? Much worse. That's the answer. How much worse punishment? Much worse. How does that work out? I don't know. But the Bible says much worse. Dear congregation, please hear me. With exposure to the truth and a profession of the truth comes greater accountability to God should you forsake Christ. 
Now, I admit that this sermon has been dark and unhappy, and the subject matter has been hard to hear. It has not been particularly fun to preach. I'd much rather preach sermons like I did last week. So why did I think it was necessary to focus on such an unhappy subject whenever I could have moved on quickly? First, I wanted to speak to any among us who may be merely religious and unconverted. Why? Because I want to warn you of the dangers of hell. Be warned. See in Judas how far you can go in religion and still be lost. Please hear me. You must come to faith in Christ. Almost Christian is not enough. Externals, mere externals of religion will not do. You must be converted. You must repent and believe. You must seek to be made clean in the blood of Christ. You may fool the entire church. You may fool your pastors, but you will not fool Jesus. He knew that Judas was a false professor, and he knows today who are false professors within his church. You may fool the world and the church, but you will not fool him. The one who knows and judges the hearts and intentions of men knows who belong to him and those who do not. Be warned. But another reason that we need to hear these hard things is this. It is good for us, even true believers, to be introspective from time to time and examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Ask yourself the hard question. I'm not saying we should live here every day, but ask yourself the question, am I really a Christian? Do I love him? Have I come to Christ in faith looking for mercy? Is he beautiful to me? Or am I only externally religious? A third thing, we need to be reminded that the grim reality of apostasy and false professors is one that we will see during our lives as Christians. You will see it. We've seen it in this church. And we need reminded of this so that we are not bewildered and shaken in our faith when we see people who we once thought loved Christ abandon him. We need to have this category of thinking in our minds so that we can think rightly when we see it happen. Because we will see it happen. But as I come now to, to application, there, there are a few things I want to say to you. First, to the false professor, if there is any among us, come to Christ. Please. Please. Come to him. You're a liar and you are a hypocrite, but there is good news for you. Jesus died to save liars and hypocrites. Come to him. He will have more mercy on you than you could ever imagine. Even now, Christ is beckoning you to come to him and be reconciled. The word of God says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So believe on him and be saved. And hear me, I know that some of us are thinking about people who have committed apostasy. Pray for them. Pray for them. Speak to them of Christ. Who knows, God may have mercy and grant them repentance. We don't give up until the coffin shuts. Pray for them. Second, let me speak now to the Christian with a tender conscience. I know some of you struggle with the assurance of salvation. And I know that sermons like this do a number on you. I know some of you. 
So to the one who lacks assurance after hearing a sermon like this, I want to talk to you now. I want to say a few things. First, know this. In one sense, the assurance of salvation is subjective. What do I mean? I mean it is the personal testimony of the Spirit of God to the individual Christian. It is a grace whereby God himself testifies to your spirit that you are a child of God. And know this, this assurance, though it is a great blessing and we should seek for it, is not necessary for salvation. They're not the same thing. Justification and assurance aren't the same thing. Justification is you have come to Christ in faith and God has declared you righteous through Christ. Assurance is knowing personally that that is true for you. They are not the same thing. They are not the same thing. So listen, you should desire assurance. You should desire assurance. But know this, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's true. You have been justified. So know that first and foremost. Believe the promises of God because they're yours. And assurance is not the same thing as justification. Know that. Second, a changed life is objective evidence of true faith. You're saying, well, how do I know that I believe? I believe the promises, but how do I know that I believe? A changed life is objective evidence of true faith. Please hear me. Not a perfect life. That doesn't exist this side of heaven. You will sin. The Bible is very clear. You will sin. I'm not making excuses for you, but that's the reality of it. Your love for Christ will never be what it should be until you are glorified. The Bible doesn't say a perfect life is evidence of true faith, but a changed life is evidence of true faith. New desires, new loves, a renewed will to follow after Christ, daily repentance from sin. These are all true marks that you have been changed by God. Examine yourself, but please don't over-examine yourself. A changed life, not a perfect life, is evidence of true faith. A third thing, R.C. Sproul once said something very helpful on the subject of assurance, and I'm going to steal from him because he was the man. Do you love Jesus? Not, not as much as you could. Not as much as you should. Not perfectly. But do you love him at all? Is he beautiful to you at all? Is he glorious to you at all? If you do, if you do love him, even at all, that is not of yourself. How do I know that? The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 says, for the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. The unconverted person hates Christ. So if you love him at all, that means that you've been born again. If you have affection for him at all, it means you've been born again and you are safe with him. Christian, believe upon Christ. Renew your faith in him and take your assurance. But lastly, I want to speak to all Christians. As the author of Hebrews says, after a very hard warning passage in Hebrews 6, a notoriously hard warning passage, he says this, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I'm saying that to you. Though I speak in this way and I give these warnings, I feel good about you all. As much as I can, I have no reason to doubt the sincerity of the profession of faith of anyone here this morning. I feel sure of better things for you. So Christian, hear and heed the warnings of Scripture and continue to cling to Christ alone. Believe his promises because they are for you.
May God grant to each one of us a sincere and unwavering faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your word that warns us. God, I, I beg, I beg for you to glorify yourself by showing mercy. If we have anyone here who is not converted, that you would save them. And God, for those maybe who have um, become sleepy in the faith, that you would use this sermon to, to wake them up and show them, you must persevere, you must continue. But for the one God who lacks assurance but ought to have it, I pray, God, that you would grant it to them and let them know Christ is dead and risen for them. Have mercy on this church, God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.